you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to go to Isaiah chapter 9. Maybe you have a hard copy or you have it electronically on your phone or your iPad. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to pick one up this morning when you leave. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So Isaiah chapter 9, and at the same time, if you don't mind, put a bookmark in uh, Revelation chapter 4. And I know that sounds intriguing. How are we going to match those two up? I'm going to take you to Revelation chapter 4 in just a few minutes. We're going to start out with Isaiah 9. And uh, I've told my wife for the last week that, that I'm incredibly intimidated by what we're about to take on. It was about two weeks ago. It just kind of really hit me like a brick of, oh my goodness, i got to teach on mighty God. And like, oh, that's so overwhelming. It's so intimidating because he's a mighty God, right? And you just sang about him. So let's, in that thought process of the one that we just worship, let's go to him in prayer and ask that he would be our teacher through this. Would you join me? As a people, Father, we're we're gathered and willingly um, just pouring it out there that you are worthy. We recognize it so we don't hesitate to say it in song. But sometimes it doesn't always translate to our mind and the reality of our everyday life. And we we need a picture, Father. We need an image to help us understand so I pray that you would do that for us this morning, that you would, you would plant an experience in our mind that we can lean into, especially when things go hard. Remind us of the big picture. So God, we come before you right now asking that you would be our teacher, and, and as we elicit thoughts from the things that you had written down thousands of years ago that are still relevant today, I ask that you would move us in such a way that we identify with understanding how you can be mighty in our life. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We accept a reality that Christmas can be hard for some people. Um, Sometimes it's called seasonal depression, um, holiday blues. Individuals ponder friends, maybe family members, who are no longer with us. They've they've passed away and, and may be tempted to think of a time of much more pleasant Christmases in their past. Or or perhaps they ponder unemployment or failed relationships or maybe an empty checkbook. And there's all kinds of things that can bring depression at this time of year when things aren't going the way that we want to. And so they ponder the losses and, and it brings depression and it can bring this seasonal blue. I'm I'm not here to set you up for a downer this morning, okay? I just want to remind you of a reality. God relentlessly pursues you with hope in the midst of that despair because that's the kind of God he is. He wants to bring encouragement. He wants to bring peace, and he wants to bring contentment. So God pursues us during times like that, and I'm going to tell you this morning, he's going to pursue you with an image. And I'm not attempting to be trite or to treat any trauma that you might be going through personally right now with any sense of insignificance. Your hardships are precious to God, and He actually tracks your tears, according to Scripture. Stores them up as memories. But what I'm here to remind you of is that God is greater than the despair you might be facing right now. He is. And so we're going to explore how He is a mighty God. This term, mighty God, means to you this morning that you have a strong refuge in the midst of whatever you might be going through or what you may have gone through this last year or what might be ahead of you next year that you don't know anything about, no matter what happens on earth, you have a strong refuge. 
That's why he says, I can hide you in the shadow of my wings. Last week, we've been addressing this question, who is Jesus to you? Jesus asked the question himself in Mark 8, who do people say that I am? And then he turned to the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And they came back with their response, and I'm asking you this morning, who is Jesus to you? And the reality of how you answer that question should mean, how does His presence in your life impact you right here in the middle of December, December 16th, 2018? How is that reality of who Jesus is as Lord and Savior, how is that impacting you today? Let me do a quick review with you of how we got to this point. We talked last week about God making a massive promise. He made the promise of all promises in Genesis chapter 3. We'll explore that more in January. But in Genesis chapter 3, God said that He's going to send a rescuer who would make everything right and restore things to the way they're supposed to be. Isaiah picks up on that. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah says, there's going to be a sign that that promise is going to be fulfilled. A virgin is going to conceive and she's going to have a baby. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. And I'm asking you once again, like I did last week, to look at the very end of that verse. Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us. El is God. Emmanuel with us. God with us. And it's absolutely unimaginable that He would willingly leave the throne of glory, the throne you're about to see in a moment, and come here? Yet that's precisely what happened, the Bible says. So Isaiah clarifies it in Isaiah 9, 6, two chapters further. He says, now here's what it's going to look like. When, When that one comes, when the virgin conceives, we're told in Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And I'm asking you this morning to read that personally. Read it like it's to you. For a son will be given to me. A child will be given to me. And I find it really powerful when we say things out loud. And so I'm going to ask you on three to say with me, to me. One, two, three, to me. See, it's as though God filled out a gift tag And that gift tag has a little string on it, and the string is tied to the baby's foot. And it says, to you. It's to me. It's given to me. It's a gift for me. Because when Isaiah is writing this, he's urging everybody who reads it, of all ages, of all generations, of all millennia, to remember this one is like no other. And he's coming to establish a final kingdom Let me remind you of the background of why Isaiah writes what he does, especially at this period of time. It's a crisis situation. Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus is born, and yet he writes in the midst of a time of trauma. The Assyrian Empire is on the march. They're sweeping across the Middle East. They're they're swarming over nations and taking them captive. Thousands have already been held by the Assyrians. One writer says that as many as 27,000 Jews were taken just from one region alone and thrown into slavery as a result of the Assyrian Empire. They've already conquered Turkey. They've already conquered Syria. They control everything from southern Africa all the way to the Black Sea. And, And Isaiah is understanding this is a crisis time and the people's hearts are heavy and dark in Israel because they're under siege. 
So this gloom hangs over the nation. In the midst of it, the king of the nation, King Ahaz, decides he better inspect the city's fresh water system. So he goes down underneath the city of Jerusalem into the caverns. I don't know if you knew that, but the, the, the water tunnels are underneath the city. And it's so vivid as you read Isaiah, you can almost hear the water dripping down from the walls and plunking into the pools. And in the midst of inspecting the water system, Isaiah the prophet shows up out of nowhere. And he says, King, King Ahaz, you, you need to be reminded God is fully capable of bringing out about all of his good purposes. So he challenges the king to ask God for a sign that God would be faithful and the king says, time out, no way, I'm out. I'm not going to do that. I will not ask of God to give me a sign. I wouldn't impose on him. So Isaiah responds with that thought of, very well, the Lord himself will give you a sign. That's Isaiah chapter 7. The Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive, and she will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So Isaiah begins to sum up the imagery of this one in chapter 9. 700 years before Jesus, look with me on the screen. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Stop right there because that's what we're going to hit today, Mighty God. His renown shall be renown. Remember we talked about that last week. His name shall be called, his renown shall be renowned, because these are his titles. In the midst of an invasion, when the nation is under siege and things are at their absolute worst in their life, a shaft of light, a hope springs forth, and God's eternal promise is clarified for his people. The ultimate rescuer is coming so the emphasis of this ancient writing written thousands of years ago is all about God's ability and to have faith in His capacity to rescue in the midst of your trauma. So let's bear down on Isaiah 9.6 and look at the second part of His renown. And His name will be called, not just Wonderful Counselor, but Mighty God. We hit Wonderful Counselor last week and we saw how amazing He is, but now it's Mighty God. And I, and I need to remind you, it's not as though Mary called him in for supper saying, Mighty God, would you come in? It's time to eat. Right? That's not what's going on. This is a title. This is a characteristic. These are not the titles of some ancient historical figure. And they're not just the lyrics to a song. And they're certainly not just words on a Christmas cards. These names express what Jesus is. Check this. They express what Jesus is to you. And for you, it's the gift tag from God. He's mighty God. So just like last week, the creator of all that is that's made everything has the ability to choose any title for himself. And he chooses, first of all, to tell you he's a wonderful counselor. And now he chooses for you to know that he's a mighty God. And, and you might think, well, that's kind of an obvious, isn't it, Mark? I mean, he's God. Of course, he's mighty. Why would he tell us that? What's the significance of this? Well, the reality is we can definitely see some of his might leaking out in the New Testament. When you read some of the stories about who Jesus is, you catch the one where he's commanding authority over nature. He's asleep in the back of a ship, and the storm breaks out on the sea, and the disciples think they're going to the bottom of the ocean, they're going to drown, and 
Jesus gets up and he rebukes the storm and immediately everything goes quiet. All you can hear is the water dripping from a sail because everything else is completely silent. And the response is, who is this one? Even the wind and the storms obey him. Or what about his authority over the demons? When Jesus encounters those who are possessed with demons and the demons cry out, we know who you are, mighty one of God. Have you come before the time to torment us? Or what about his arrest in the garden when the soldiers of Rome show up and Jesus says, who are you seeking? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. His response is, I am. And they all collapse and faint according to what's recorded in Scripture. So you see bits and pieces leaking out as you read the New Testament. What about us, New Hope? What about here in 2018? What about New Hope? We could definitely say we see him as mighty God in glimpses and pieces. He's raised up a church. He's done this of his own, and I don't mean that he's building a building for us out on East Saginaw Highway. I mean, what about all the baptisms? What about all the salvations? What about marriages that have been restored? Babies born out of married couples? What about all that God has done through us as a body of Christ? We could say, what a mighty God. But those are glimpses, those are pieces, and all those would be true. But I'm here to tell you this morning, there's an even greater image of this one. One that God himself paints for us. And in the big picture, you need to remember this, while the God-man will wear to some degree the titles Isaiah writes of, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, while While on planet earth during his first coming, he does wear those titles to some degree. They actually come to their full consummation in the second coming. They reach their climax there. So I want you to see this mighty God phrase and get an imprint in your mind. Look with me on the screen at just the phrase, mighty God. And you see at the end of it at 9.6, the Hebrew term, El Gabor. El is God, so Gabor is a descriptive title. In Gabor, if you look in your notes or you look on the screen, you'll see the definition for it. And it means powerful warrior or a champion. Let that champion phrase stay in your mind this morning. Let that powerful warrior image stay with you. Because in chapter 9, up until now, you've been told he's a wonderful counselor beyond human comprehension. Supernatural wisdom, the knowledge only God could possess. But now Isaiah comes right out, and he attributes deity to this one. He says, this one's divine, and you need to understand, it's, it's not just because he's Gabor. It's not talking about muscle strength here. Gabor is talking about a powerful champion, and they associated that word with warriors. King David was a mighty champion. The giants of Noah's time, they were mighty men of renown, champions, Samson was a warrior, a champion. That's not what this is talking about. He's not just Gabor. He's El Gabor, meaning mighty God. So you need to understand El in the way that El is used in the Hebrew language. We find ourselves using it all the time without even knowing it. We, we use the name Michael or Gabriel. El is always a designation of God, and El actually means that God is the mighty one or the strong one. And then you add the characteristic of Gabor to it. So you've got the strong one who's also a champion, and you have divinity. 
Now, the other prophets who write in the Old Testament, they actually agree with Isaiah. They write the same way. Look with me on the screen. Jeremiah 32. O great and mighty God, that's El Gabor, the Lord of hosts is his name. Or what about this, Zephaniah 3.17? The Lord your God is in your midst, a Gabor one, a mighty one. See, this makes the words of Isaiah 9.6. And pay attention if you've got somebody in your life like this that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. This makes the words of 9.6 incredibly important because it's one of the most powerful evidences that Jesus, in fact, would be God in the human flesh. That this baby born of a teenage virgin girl in the ancient Middle East, the son who is given to you is indeed mighty God. So Isaiah is saying, when you think of this one, when you think of this God-man, you've got to put the two together. He's not just Gabor, he's El Gabor. And you have the omnipotence of God in Christ Jesus. So his real deity stands among all the other attributes of being a wonderful counselor and everlasting father and a prince of peace. He's also God. And check this, church. It doesn't say he will become mighty God. It says he's called mighty God, meaning he already is. His renown shall be renown. He already is mighty God. The origins are of old. People are going to call him for what he is. So write this on the mind right here. Write this right on the walls of your mind. Jesus Christ is co-equal with God the Father. I hope you believe that. Co-equal with the Creator. If you don't believe that, we can't really go any further. He's not worthy then. If he's not, God. Very God of very God. Scripture says, counted it not robbery to be equal with God. If he were not, this one could never bear the government upon his shoulders. He would not be omniscient. He would not be omnipresent. He would not be omnipotent. And he certainly could never handle the issues of your life. And your salvation, you might as well throw that out the door if Jesus is not God. And as hard as it is to grasp the baby in the manger, the human child at the same time is mighty God. And I emphasize that for just a moment because that's the biggest one that most people trip over. I guarantee you, you have individuals in your social circle who, who accept Jesus as a historical figure but cannot accept him as God. And of all the images in Isaiah chapter 6 or chapter 9, this, this one right here is the one most people struggle with. Here's why. The world is willing to acknowledge a baby in a manger because he's vulnerable and helpless, and it doesn't threaten me. So if, if you must speak and sing of him, if you must talk about swaddling clothes and a, a tiny, tender infant, do that. It's of no threat to me. It's no threat to my personal sin. It's no threat to my pride. But as soon as you attach him to being God, don't you go there. Don't declare that I need a sovereign over my life. I want nothing to do with that. So manger Jesus is one thing, but ruler Jesus on a throne, God Almighty, that's another thing altogether. Now, all that you and I have spoken of so far this morning are just glimpses from this side of heaven. But I want you to know that God gives an even greater view, an expanded view 
of who this one is. So I'm, I'm going to invite you to step into a vision of things that are not yet seen. Things that we need to understand when we think of mighty God. Know this first. When God's on his throne, God's government is a theocracy, not a democracy. And in the United States, we really struggle with this because we're used to the judicial system. We're used to the executive branch and the legislative branch. But God's kingdom is a theocracy, meaning there's no Green Party, there's no Peace Party, there's no Socialist Movement, there's no Republicans, there's no Democrats. I delay just waiting for the amen. Okay, it's a theocracy, people, right? It's, It's one ruler. All power, all authority. So when you think of this one with a theocracy, you have to picture a robe, And you have to picture a scepter, you have to picture a throne, and when you place all power and all authority under one supreme being, you would call him God. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2, John writes of things that we need to understand. Look with me on the screen. And behold... A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So the first word John chooses to use is, wow, right? Because he says, behold, and behold is an ancient way of saying, wow, it's a word we use today because we don't have any words. Wow is an acronym for without words. I got nothing. Shock, astonishment. He is beholding what he's seeing and he can barely describe it. Notice this, church, that, that there is a throne means there are absolutes because he said, I saw a throne standing in heaven, meaning it's fixed and it's unshakable. And that throne cannot be altered. It's guaranteed by the presence of a fixed standing throne. In other words, there's nothing that can happen in your life. There's nothing that mankind can do that can alter the reality of this fixed throne. And I hope you see that as a comforting realization, not a threatening one. God never changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the throne remains the same. And we're told in verse 2, the one who is sitting on the throne, that, that one is the creator of the universe, and he's in a posture of reigning. In other words, random chance does not govern the universe. God does. And so we've got a throne here, and we've got a God sitting on a throne And before we go any further, let it be known that God is on an unshakable throne. And John says, when I look at this, I see him, and he's like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. What's a jasper? It's a biblical way of saying a diamond, best we understand it. What is a diamond? A diamond is clear. It refracts light. So he's looking at this being on the throne who's like a diamond, who is clear yet refracts light. And he says, like a a sardius. What's a sardius? Well, that's ruby red. It's fiery in its appearance, representing the, the blazing glory of God. So here you have God in flashing, flaming light and color, refracting all the aspects of the spectrum 
in unbelievable brilliance. And then John goes on to write, and there's like a rainbow around the throne, encircling it. And he says, it's like an emerald. Oh, an emerald, what do we know about that? We know it's green. So green is the dominant color in radiance around him. And before you MSU fans get too excited, I know where your mind's going. It's like an emerald, okay? He uses the word like a lot in Revelation. It's like this, but here's what he says. It's emanating and it's vibrant in its brilliance. And this is an exact match for what Ezekiel wrote a long time before John ever saw it. Look with me on the screen, Ezekiel 127. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, does that register with you? I'm going to do the same thing. You will too. All the saints who talk about heaven all say they did the exact same thing. They fainted. They did a face plant. I I fell on my face when I saw him. Revelation 4, verse 5, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So flowing out from God's presence is this electrical storm. It's the best way John can describe it. He says there's, there's lightning flashing all over and there's sounds of rolling thunder. So you have this place of dazzlingly brilliant light refracting and shining as through jewels in a manner beyond human description. And it's all accompanied by this flash of lightning and the sounds of thunder. And the vision continues as you move over into chapter 5. I know we're moving through it really fast, but we need to understand this mighty one. Revelation 5.1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Books as we know them today did not originate until the second century A.D., We know of very square, nicely trimmed corners, flat pages, hard covers or soft covers. But up until that period of time, it was either papyrus or most commonly in the world that John lived in, scrolls. And scrolls were of leather, very thinly sliced leather. And they could write on the front. And in a really important document, they would write on the back also. So here we have sealed up with seven seals, this contract. And how do we know it's a contract? Well, it's a contract because of the seals that are on it. All over the Middle East, these type of contracts were known. It's carrying a legal transaction. Something has been written down and it's been sealed. And in the ancient Roman world, testaments were sealed with one to six seals, depending on their level of importance. Somebody would take a fob and a wax and dip it into the seal, and the seal would ensure that no one would break it. And then to make doubly sure, they'd put a second seal on and triply sure a third seal. A really important document got six seals, but seven seals, it's unheard of. John says, I see this thing, and it's sealed up with seven seals, and that means only the owner, only the one to whom it belongs can break that seal and disclose what the contents are. So this scroll that's in the hand of the mighty one sitting on the throne contains the unveiling of the mysteries of God that all the ancient prophets wrote about. Daniel himself said, the things that I saw and I understood, they're they're sealed up. I can't look into them. 
So the seals conceal a mystery. The, the one only can disclose the mystery. What's the mystery? How the kingdom is finally going to come? How the second coming is actually going to take place? So this scroll contains not only things about the kingdom, it's the announcement of the consummation of all of history. In other words, how all of human life is going to end. That's what it contains. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? You have a mighty angel shouting out a challenge. Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone to come forth and break the seal? And can you imagine? This hasn't happened yet. This is an eternity future. Everyone's standing around and just looking. Silence. Scripture actually records no one's even moving at this point. They're consumed with the reality that no one is stepping forward. So the angel speaks really loud and it penetrates to every corner of the universe. Who has the character and the capacity that would qualify him? We need a champion. Someone who can reverse the curse. The curse that's on all of creation. But his voice only echoes because there's silence. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Picture this, church. The most powerful beings ever created are the cherubim and the seraphim. The archangel Michael and Gabriel, who says, I stand in the presence of God himself. They stand and they don't step forward to say, I'm worthy. No one steps forward of all the billions of people. No one steps forward. Countless individuals. All the redeemed followers. Adam, Noah, Moses, Joseph, Esther, Ruth, King David, Zephaniah. Malachi, Haggai, Peter, James, Philip, Paul. Paul, you wrote the book of Romans. Are you not worthy? From William Tyndale to Billy Graham and every single one of your family members who have gone before you who died in Christ Jesus, silent, They stand with no reaction whatsoever. Silence in heaven except for the loud wailing of John. This is the only time in Scripture we see tears allowed in heaven. Chapter 7 says that God wipes away every tear. But here, the tears are allowed And they go on and on, and John continues to wail. Why is he so full of grief? What would happen if someone mighty enough cannot step forward to reveal the contents of the scroll? 
Rather than me describing it for you, W.A. Criswell, who happens to be one of my heroes, he wrote back in the 1940s about this moment. Look with me. It's in your notes as a quote, but you'll see it on the screen. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of John's are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bow over the first grave, as they water the dust of the ground with the tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cry unto heaven. They are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they look on their silent dead, as they stand beside open graves, as they experience the sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that has laid upon God's beautiful creation, and this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. That usurper, that interloper, that interluder, the alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And I wept audibly. A failure to find a redeemer meant that the earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. See, John has known what you have known. He's known the trauma of losing people. He's known when things have not gone well in his life. He knows when he can't put bread on the table. He's seen Thomas sawn in two. He's seen Peter crucified upside down. He's seen his friends thrown to the lions. He knows what sickness looks like, and John is weeping because he wants a world just like you want a world that's purged of evil and purged of sin and purged of death. So John's wailing because there's no one worthy. But if you know the end of the story, you know John's weeping is premature, don't you? Look with me on the screen. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Stop it, John. It's unnecessary. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There is one champion, John. There is one who is mighty because of his victory over death, because of his victory over sin. There is one who has triumphed, one who is the nikao, the overcomer. That one emerges on the scene, the lion of Judah, the root of David. Now check this. No human can redeem you. No human can redeem the universe. No angel can open the scroll. But there is one, and he's called El Gabor. The mighty God of Isaiah 9.6. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because he has overcome. How did he overcome? Well, he overcame by defeating sin. Romans 8.3. He overcame by defeating death. Hebrews 2.14. And he overcame the forces of hell. Colossians 2.15. Look them up yourself. Check them later today. And because he is mighty, you church, we have overcome because of his overcoming. That's why scripture says you're more than conquerors through him who has overcome. Now we close this imagery with this ah, so hard to comprehend scene. 
glowing, blazing light reflecting out from God's glory, emanating from the throne room. And amidst the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder, John is suddenly drawn to an image of the Lamb of God standing next to the throne. Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. See, they fall down just because he took the scroll. He hasn't even opened it yet. They're beginning to praise him. See, know this. See, no one approaches God and takes anything from his hand. Right, church? Nobody takes anything from God, especially his powerful right hand. No one approaches the throne. Angels attend him. The living creatures, they swarm about him. Heaven and earth, it bows down before him. But this one walks up to God and takes the scroll. See, the very appearance of the Lamb of God stepping forward causes adulation to break out throughout the universe. And the praise accelerates into a crescendo and the outburst of worship. It results from the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is the mighty champion of Isaiah chapter 9. And he has come forward. And all the pent-up anticipation of the millennia finally breaks out at the prospect of what's about to happen. God is about to take back his creation, what is rightfully his. And this passage coming up, the final verse, is my personal center of gravity. And I hope you have one in your life. And I hope it's this. I hope it's this truth. It's the truth that Lori and I raised our children around. It's the truth we seek to impart here at New Hope, that there is one, and that one is worthy Look with me at verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Do you agree with that, church? Is He worthy? You just sang that. He is worthy. He's worthy. Why? Because he was slain from the foundation of the earth to, to receive what? To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This passage that you're looking at, it's the basis for the formation of Handel's Messiah. George Frederick Handel sat down and read Isaiah chapter 9 and then read Revelation chapter 4 chapter 5, and then locked himself away for 21 days. The people who attended to him could barely get him to eat or drink. And at the end of 21 days, he comes out with perhaps the greatest piece of music ever written on this earth. And the hallelujah chorus blows your mind away at the end of Handel's Messiah. He's picturing what's happening here. If you ever go by my yard in the summertime and you see me out mowing in the front of our house and you see me actually stop with my hands up in the air, it's because I keep Handel's Messiah on my top 50. I keep the Hallelujah Chorus in rotation. And I bet I've heard it thousands of times throughout the course of my life. 
So my neighbors probably think I'm a freak, but every once in a while I'll stop the mower and I'll just stand up and put my hands up and it's because I got my earbuds in and I'm just listening to the hallelujah chorus. So don't think I'm a freak when you go by. And I really don't care if you do because I'm willing to be a freak like that, right? I thought with this image so fresh in our mind, we should end in the most unusual way. I want to pray for you in just a moment. But I thought, what if we did the hallelujah chorus? So know this, all over this planet, people stand up when they hear this. If, if you want to, go ahead and bust it out. Feel free. But just close your eyes right now. Picture all the imagery that was just painted for you. And then worship in whatever way you want to worship.
I'm going to invite you all to stand where you're at. I had a 28-year-old guy say to me last night, I, I never knew. We have a world that doesn't know a church. That young man didn't know that. He thought that was a Christmas song. He never knew that it was Scripture put to life. He is your mighty God. He's your everlasting Father. And He is your unshakable refuge, regardless of what you're going through, no matter what happens on this earth. We win. Because He won, right? Because of what we did. So I have to ask you, is, is there anything more freeing, more strengthening than the truth that the mighty God is your refuge all day, every day, in the ordinary and the extraordinary? He's there. Let me pray with you. Father, you have shown yourself to be a wonderful counselor in ways that boggle the mind. And now you've shown us what a mighty God you look like. And it's, it's just a painted picture for us. It's, it's the best we can do with music and imagery to get our mind around it. I, I can't imagine the day when we stand before you. Actually, we fall before you. God, if we really let the truth of this sink in, what a radical difference it would make. What it would do to our personal lives. What it would do for our church. How humble and powerful would we be for your kingdom. For your kingdom. Make it true of us, Father. There are friends among us right now who need you to be mighty God for them. Be close to them, Father. We ask this in the exalted name of the great I am, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.